This is the Notorious Bakersfield Podcast. I'm Robert Peterson, the host and creator of this podcast that takes a look back at some of Bakersfield's most notorious crimes, events, and characters. Happy New Year! Welcome back. Thanks for tuning in and finding me after I took a couple of weeks off for the holidays. I was able to use that downtime to research a number of stories, and today's is one of those. This story is complex. It involves four criminals who committed multiple crimes over a long period of time. I'm not going to do a deep dive into all of their crimes. I'm mostly going to focus on the really horrific crimes, the homicides. And there were three of those, three victims of murder. With four principal criminals and three victims, it's a lot of information to unpack. I felt the easiest way to tell this story is to break it up into two parts. This episode will be part one, and next Tuesday will be part two. For a period of time that spans almost the entire 1980s, an organized crime ring operated in Bakersfield. This crime syndicate consisted of a ragtag group of friends and acquaintances. They targeted independent businesses and individuals throughout Bakersfield. And they got away with committing crimes for years. Their offenses were prolific. Robberies, armed robberies, burglaries, and even three murders. This band of brazen criminals even gave themselves a catchy name. The Corporation. They operated for so long without capture because they had a connection. They had an in, the mastermind, the CEO, the boss of the corporation was a reserve Bakersfield police officer. This is the corporation. Like I mentioned in the opening, this organized crime ring had a hand in numerous crimes from burglary to armed robbery, even murder. The lesser crimes reached double digits. If the truth were known, there were probably over a dozen robberies and burglaries committed by this group. But I'm not going to get into the details of those crimes too much, the burglaries and robberies, for a couple of reasons. Number one, there were so many. And number two, those crimes weren't prosecuted, so there's not much of a record of them. What I'm going to focus on for this story are the three homicides attributed to this crime ring. Before I do, I'll give you an idea of how the corporation operated, their modus operandi. Kenneth Lawrence Mount, the mastermind of this group, was employed with an oil company. He also was a reserve Bakersfield police officer. As a reserve officer, his role was essentially no different than a regular cop. He wore a uniform and badge and carried a weapon. When on duty, he'd be dispatched to calls just like a regular Bakersfield police officer. Working in this capacity as a uniformed law enforcement officer came in handy. It gave Mount the opportunity to collect information that proved useful in his criminal endeavors. 
He'd pay close attention to a business's habits, like when they made bank drops, where the money and valuables were secured. He'd take note if an establishment had a vulnerable security system, or if they had no security system at all. Additionally, Mount moonlighted as a security officer for different businesses. While he was doing this, he'd assess a business's security weaknesses. Then Mount would coordinate with his cohorts, his fellow conspirators, his corporation members. Using the information Mount collected, they planned their heists. When the time came to follow through with these plans, it would be while Mount was on duty, working as a Bakersfield police officer. Mount would act as the lookout while the others were actually robbing or burglarizing a targeted business. He'd monitor law enforcement radio frequencies to make sure police weren't dispatched to those crimes while they were in progress. And if he heard a radio call for a crime while they were there, Mount would conveniently be in the vicinity, often the first cop on scene. Sometimes he'd even help his accomplices escape from the crime scenes. This organized crime syndicate was caught and prosecuted due in large part to one of the participants' cooperation with the district attorney's office. Robert Scroggins was that member of the corporation. He was granted limited immunity in exchange for information he revealed against Kenneth Lawrence Mount, the mastermind, and others who participated in the crimes. The narrative for this story is Robert Scroggins' version of how things went down. Prosecutors used Scroggins' story not because it was the most accurate or truthful, but because he was the first they got to turn. Scroggins played a significant role in these crimes and would have gone to prison for many, many years. But since he cut a deal with the district attorney, he didn't get nearly the prison sentence he would have if he hadn't cooperated. So keep that in mind while you listen to this story. Charles Robert DePriest was born and raised in Arvin. After graduating from Arvin High School in 1972, he moved to Carson City, Nevada. There, he worked at a pizza parlor and then, later, in construction. After a while, he grew homesick. He began missing his friends and family back home. So, he moved back to Arvin, bringing with him his Australian shepherd named Gypsy. The priest enrolled in an apprenticeship program with the Plumbers and Steamfitters Union, learning the trade of welding. With that training, he was able to find employment in the oil construction field. At some point, he moved from Arvin to live in Bakersfield. One of DePriest's hobbies was skydiving. He was a regular out at the Taft School of Sport Parachuting. It was an activity he very much enjoyed. It was his way of conquering his fear of heights. However, he left that sport after witnessing a plane crash that claimed the lives of 14 fellow skydivers in October 1982. But DePriest wasn't one to be idle. He discovered a new hobby, in his mind a less dangerous one, scuba diving. Just like he did with skydiving, DePriest gave it his all. 
He was a quick study. He eventually went on scuba diving excursions to Catalina Island in Mexico. As most people in Bakersfield understand, the oil business is cyclical. It's feast or famine. The oil industry took a downturn in 1983. When it did, the priest found himself unemployed, the victim of layoffs that impacted the entire local oil industry. It was around this time that Bakersfield police began investigating Charles DePriest for dealing marijuana and cocaine. Now, I don't know if he actually was a drug dealer, but I do know the police suspected he was. And evidently, this is how DePriest came to the attention of Kenneth Mount, a reserve Bakersfield police officer. Mount received information that DePriest kept large quantities of both cash and drugs at his home in the 2600 block of Erlene Avenue near Pacheco Road and Hughes Lane. Kenneth Mount took this information to his fellow conspirators, Tommy Porter and Robert Scroggins. The three men met at Farmer John Pancake House on Union Avenue to plan the robbery of DePriest. Using a play on his last name, the trio gave their targeted victim a code name. They gave him the code name the Pope. While Mount was gathering intelligence on their targeted victim, the other two would stake out his house. They did this to determine what cars the priest drove and try to figure out if he had a pattern in his daily life. Was there a certain time he left? When was he home alone? Did friends and family drop by at certain times? The corporation didn't rush into a job unprepared. They were methodical and thorough. The planning, surveillance, and information gathering of Charles DePriest's robbery was done over a period of several weeks. Once they decided they had enough information to successfully pull off the robbery, the mission was greenlighted to take place on December 11, 1983. At 9 p.m. on that Sunday night, Mount, Porter, and Scroggins drove to Charles DePriest's house on Erlene Avenue. Mount was driving his personal vehicle, but he was wearing his full Bakersfield police uniform. He was equipped with a police scanner to monitor radio frequencies and they had walkie-talkies to communicate. Mount pulled into the driveway of DePriest's house with all the confidence in the world, in full uniform. Mount walked up to DePriest's front door and knocked. DePriest was surely surprised to find a Bakersfield police officer standing at his front door when he answered. The officer asked DePriest for his ID. When DePriest turned around to get his ID, two other men rushed in from behind Mount. Kenneth Mount turned around and walked back to his car. He backed out of the driveway and waded down the street. Mount sat in his vehicle, listening to the police scanner, making sure no calls related to this mission were broadcast over the police frequencies. Back at DePriest's house, all hell was breaking loose. After rushing DePriest, when he answered the door, Porter held a gun to his head, 
demanding to know where he hid his cash and drugs. While Porter pistol-whipped DePriest on the living room floor, Scroggins went through the house looking for valuables. Scroggins found cash, drugs, checks, scales for drug sales, and a scuba tank. While Scroggins was scouring the house, Porter moved a priest into the bathroom, where he continued beating and questioning him about valuables. Scroggins, after finding the scuba tank, Scroggins took it to the bathroom to ask Porter if he wanted to steal it. Porter said no. Before going back, looking for more stuff to steal, Scroggins set the scuba tank down in the hallway just outside the bathroom. Porter exited the bathroom to pick up the scuba tank. He went back in and began mercilessly beating the priest with the tank. After a few minutes of bludgeoning the priest, Porter summoned Scroggins back to the bathroom. The two men picked the priest up off the floor to move his body to the bathtub. The two men walked to the living room. Using the walkie-talkie, Porter radioed Mount, who was still sitting in his car down the street. The job was complete. He told Mount to come pick them up. After loading their loot into the car, Mount asked if they killed the priest. Porter replied, the Pope is dead. The three men went to Mount's house, where they divided their take. After not hearing anything from Charles de Priest for a couple of days, his family became concerned. His brother-in-law and two friends went to check on him. When they arrived at the house, they found all doors locked. They broke through a window and called out for him. They didn't get an answer. The brother-in-law crawled through the window. He went through all the rooms. When he got to the bathroom, he found the bloody crime scene. He stepped inside and saw the priest's body in the bathtub, lying face down, just how the assailants left it. Charles Robert de Priest was 29 years old. He was survived by his parents and two sisters. His brother-in-law described Charles as the cornerstone of their family. Later, his family maintained they didn't know the priest was being investigated for trafficking narcotics. He is buried in Arvin Cemetery. Since police suspected the priest of being a dealer, a drug dealer, detectives investigating his death felt very strongly that that played a role in his murder. They assumed he was killed in a drug deal gone wrong. The last thing homicide detectives suspected was that one of their own a Bakersfield police officer played a role in DePriest's murder. Charles DePriest's homicide is just one of three committed by the corporation. This is Robert Peterson. I'll be back next week, next Tuesday, with the second part and conclusion to this story. Until then, stay safe, stay out of trouble. Don't become a future episode of the Notorious Bakersfield Podcast. <laughs>